they have a participation in God's providence. Providence means you see ahead, literally. And they're looking ahead toward needs and desires that are not presently being met, sometimes at all, or other times not effectively enough. Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, Father Roger J. Landry, a priest of the Diocese of Fall River, Massachusetts, and Catholic chaplain to Columbia University in New York City, sits down with Sarah Negri, research project coordinator at the Acton Institute, to discuss the social teaching of Pope John Paul II, and especially his emphasis on the vocation of the Christian entrepreneur. Father Landry shares some history on John Paul II's three most famous social encyclicals and elucidates their importance for the ordinary Christian worker. The discussion centers around the Christian vocation to work as a divine injunction, the subjective and objective elements of work, and how the Christian worker imitates both God as creator and Christ as the perfect human model of holy labor. It also touches on the challenges faced by the human worker, including the possibility of alienation, workaholism, and the toil that accompanies hard labor, as well as solutions to these challenges. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome to Acton Line. I'm Sarah Negri, Research Project Coordinator for the Acton Institute. I'm here today with Father Roger Landry, a priest of the Diocese of Fall River, Massachusetts, who serves as Catholic chaplain to Columbia University in New York City and to the Thomas Merton Institute for Catholic Life. He is also ecclesiastical assistant to Aid to the Church in Need USA, a papal missionary of mercy, a national Eucharistic preacher for the USCCB's National Eucharistic Revival, chaplain to the New York chapter of the Leonine Forum, and a member of the board of the Shrine of Our Lady of the Martyrs in Orysville, New York. A graduate of Harvard College and the Pontifical North American College in Rome, he served as attaché to the Holy See's Permanent Observer Mission to the United Nations in New York, and has been a pastor, newspaper editor, and high school chaplain in the Diocese of Fall River. He writes for many publications, appears regularly on television and radio, and is the author of Plan of Life, Habits to Help You Grow Closer to God. His homilies, articles, retreats, conferences, videos, and other offerings are available for free at catholicpreaching.com. Father Landry, welcome. Thanks for being with us today on Act in Line. Good to be with you, Sarah, and all those tuning in. We're here at Acton University, and I'd like to focus this podcast on uh, a couple of the lectures that you are giving to our guests this week. One of them was entitled The Entrepreneurial Vocation, um, which I believe you took from Father Robert Sirico's book. The title I at least took from his book. I was not plagiarizing the rest of his words. <laughs> certainly, certainly. The content <laughs> is much your own. Um, so I'd like to dive into that, as well as the social teachings of John Paul II, which I believe is the other lecture you'll be giving 
um, and some of those encyclicals that he talks about there. And certainly there will be a lot of crossover. Um, so, yeah, let's dive right in. Can you share a little bit about the three major social encyclicals of John Paul II um, and some of their distinguishing characteristics, how they differ from one another? Sure. Just so that everybody's on the same page, because we've got listeners from all over the world, I think, tuning in from different religious faith traditions. Catholic social teaching or Catholic social doctrine is a body of moral theology that applies to group actions, basically. So actions of the family, actions of political communities, actions of the international community, the work with regard to peace and justice in the world, etc. And this type of formal thought goes back to 1991, when Pope Leo XIII gave us a document called On the New Things, or in Latin, Rerum Novarum, trying to bring the body of the church's reflections on individual actions and look at these group actions of states or corporations, etc. It was partially a response to the industrial age. And that formed this... Sorry, is this 1891? 1891. Okay, I believe you said 1991. Just Sorry, want to clarify for listeners. Because we'll talk about a John Paul II document from 1991. Exactly, yeah. But in 1891, it all started. And it um, it's, was considered very helpful guidance, not just within the church, but within society, because for the most part... We needed new ethical underpinnings for a lot of the new things that were coming in society. And so then on the 40th anniversary, there was a document by Pope Pius XI in 1931 reflecting more on the principles that were given four decades before to the new questions that were coming up in the 1930s, especially after World War One and the Great Depression and everything else. And then in uh, 1961... Pope St. John XXIII gave us another document called Mater and Magistra, Mother and Teacher, continuing the conversation and application. Then St. John Paul II came, and two of his three great social encyclicals were to mark and advance what Leo XIII had started. So in 1981, he gave us a document that was called Laborum Exercens on the Dignity of Human Work. And in 1991, for the 100th anniversary of Rerum Novarum, he gave us this incredible document called Centesimus Annus, which is really part of what Acton has tried to popularize over the course of centuries, because the principles in there with regard to Catholic social teaching are consonant with what Kuiper was trying to do in the Reformed tradition and so many of these other fawns in terms of who the human person is as an agent of work and how his dignity needs to flourish in these larger contexts. And so that's a small little history of, um, of Catholic social teaching. St. John Paul II, when he was in the Second Vatican Council, recognized that there was a little bit of an issue with the way that the church was giving this social teaching to the world, he knew that the conclusions were true, but he thought that the premises to those conclusions weren't as helpful to engage the world in dialogue as they might be, because the church was articulating these things mainly in terms of natural law, which was more philosophical and theological. The Catholic Church was trying to play an away game, to use a sports analogy, to speak in terms that everybody would be able to understand. But in so doing, we were not being as persuasive as we might be, especially 
inside to persuade Catholics and other Christians because we weren't using biblical premises or premises that were taken from the church's reflections on the human person as a moral agent over the course of centuries. And so there was a document in 1965 in the Second Vatican Council, which was somewhat revolutionary, called Gaudium et Spes, Latin for joy and hope. And in it, they tried to reorient the church's whole dialogue with the world in a in an anthropological key, meaning based on what we are all able to know about who the human person is. And so the linchpin paragraphs had two great insights. The first is to know what it means to be human, we have to look to Jesus Christ, who was a perfect human. So it teaches that um, that the human person's sublime vocation can only be known with reference by reference to Jesus. And then the second was a moral conclusion, that in order for us to find fulfillment, it's not going to be by having, it's not going to be by getting, it's going to be fundamentally by giving. And so the Second Vatican Council said there in Gaudium et Spes, the human person is only going to fulfill himself through the disinterested or unselfish gift of himself toward others. That in common terminology was trying to put into action what Jesus himself said in the gospel, that the two most important things we need to do is to love God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so to give of ourselves unselfishly to others, it would be an accessible way to describe that we've got to live truly loving lives. So that's what this young Polish bishop named uh, Carol Wojtyla brought to the Second Vatican Council this theological idea that to understand what it means to be human, you got to look to Jesus, who was 100% God and 100% human, and then to find fulfillment, it's not going to be um, through self-assertion, but it's going to be through self-gift. And so when he was elected, the 264th successor of St. Peter, October 16, 1998, sorry, 1978, he was elected with this whole approach to the modern world in mind. And so in his first encyclical on Christ, the Redeemer of Man, he brought these two insights to the level of the papacy. And then throughout his papacy and almost every document he wrote, he kept coming back to what Christ teaches us about to be about being human. And then, in order to have it all, we've got to follow Christ along His path of self-giving love. That's the background for these three social encyclicals. So, the first social encyclical was 1981 on the dignity of human work. And so, what Saint John Paul II tried to give the world then was to help us to grasp that. Um, made in the image of Christ, Christ was called in the Gospels a tecton, a builder, a construction worker. Sometimes we reduce it to carpentry, but he was also using stone. He would have also been using metal. So it's a little broader than that. And Christ teaches us how to do typical human work in a in a sacred way, that Jesus was redeeming us not just by his three years of public ministry or his three days of the Last Supper, Good Friday, and Easter, but he was saving us throughout the entirety of his life, including all of those hidden years when he was doing normal human work as a tecton in Nazareth, building stuff for himself, for his family, Mary and Joseph, and for others. And then it started to describe that the human person, through work, is fulfilling what God did at the beginning of time when he created the human person and pronounced him very good. Prior to the fall, if you look at the book of Genesis, St. John Paul II said 
the human person had received a triple vocation of work. First and most important one was procreation, that we would be able to participate with the Creator in bringing new human beings into existence. And there is some work involved there, even though I'm a celibate priest, I, I recognize sure. that the raising of children obviously is a very demanding vocation. Second was to fill the earth and subdue it, that what he was essentially saying down the road is the matter, the material world that the Lord has given us has incredible potential. Who would have been able to guess way back when that we'd be able to have computer chips, not to mention glass, out of sand, to just so many medicines out of plants that might seem poisonous at first, that the world is full with so much potential. And we are sent out as stewards to bring the world into potential. But as we do that, we're likewise perfecting ourselves through the way we do that work. If we do it with virtue, we're building our second nature at the same time we're making something outside of us. And then the third command was to have dominion over all the animals, that we would name them, that they'd be part of what we ourselves would need in order to come to perfection. And so... Um, so that was the, what God had given us before the fall. Then after original sin, there was still work. We still had that calling to do work, but it would now be somewhat painful. There'd be pangs in childbirth. There'd be toil with cultivating the world, and there'd be sweat with regard to domesticating animals and everything else. But the, the, those pains those sufferings would be part of the redemption, that uh, adding the degree of difficulty to our work would require greater love from us in order to do that work. As every mom knows, after she's gone through 25 hours of contractions to hold her baby son or daughter, that that work was worth it because of the child that comes. Likewise, anybody who's really toiled for anything worthwhile likewise recognizes it. And so Laborum Exerchens was an attempt to help us to learn from Christ how to give of ourselves in our work so that our work expressed through love would not only do something objective to improve the lot of others, but also in that same action help bring us to perfection whom God had called very good at the beginning. Sorry for such a short answer. <laughs> no, that's great. I like that you focused on laborum exertion specifically because um, that idea of conformity to Christ in our labor was something that, that struck me. Um, uh, you mentioned several ways that we can become like God through human work, um, procreation, co-creating with him what we're uh, working towards is one element. There are a bunch of other ones you mentioned in your talk, but that idea of human toil, of the effort involved in the pain um, that came after the fall, was this a new idea that had um, been brought up in Laborum Exertions about how we can be conformed to Christ and his redemption through that? Or is there scriptural basis for that, specifically with regarding human labor, our conformity to Christ in that way? So nobody had quite expressed it as pointedly as St. John Paul II had, but it was present in some of the early commentators on sacred scripture, those we call the fathers of the church, that when they asked what was the purpose of what at first would seem punishments by God for the fall, what was the purpose of it if God is loving and merciful? And they started to say that there's always a medicinal reason to every medicine, uh, to every um, punishment that God gives, that he's always trying to bring us back 
into his image and likeness. And so what St. John Paul II was trying to synthesize was that in that toil, to quote St. Paul in his first letter to the church in Colossae, we are making up what is lacking in ourselves of Christ's sufferings for the good of the church, that we're all building up Christ's body through this perfection that occurs in us. When we begin to overcome our selfishness, our um, inability to embrace the cross on a daily basis, these types of things, that we would be able to do that through our work when we were trying to do our work the way Abel did at the beginning of the book of Genesis, trying to offer it as the first fruits, as the best we can give to God, that we're sanctifying our work that way. Then second, we recognize that when we're working well, doing the best job that we can, sometimes we're going to be incredibly talented and gifted in a particular area. Sometimes it really is going to be laborious. Any teacher has recognized that there are some students who pick things up immediately and others who really have to study and learn from their mistakes, etc. But regardless of whether it's easy or hard, we're perfecting ourselves when we do it well. So we're sanctifying ourselves through our work. And then third, we never quite, we never really work alone. Even when we're cubbyholed in the middle of a pandemic in our own office without windows, the work that we're doing impacts others in some way. Somebody's going to be the recipient of it. And when we keep that in mind as we're doing our work, it can become an offering of love to that person. And for those of us who are lucky, I'm saying this as an extrovert, to have a chance to work with others, that is likewise an opportunity for us to be able to grow together through those common virtues as we seek aim. Because through the toil that we're doing, through showing up and getting to work and all the rest that goes in, it's not always easy. But we're, when we have the purpose behind it, it can perfect us in self-giving love. And so that's why it's part of the redemption. Work um, which remained after the fall became part of our vocation to holiness after the fall. Through this pain and childbirth, through the toil, through the sweat, which aren't supposed to be interpreted literalistically, but as a whole category of this capacity to suffer out of love for those we're serving through our labor. That's beautiful. Thanks for expounding upon that. I'd like to go back to that distinction you made. You've mentioned a couple times now how we can form something as the result of our work. There's sort of an object of our work that we're working towards. And then you, you've also said the work forms us in a way. There's a subjective element. Can you elaborate on that objective, subjective distinctions present in Centesimus Annus? Well, it first started in Laborum Exercens, which is where he really does it on a one-on-one -on -one level, and then he'll take it to a larger level in Centesimus Annus. But let me just stick at Laborum Exercens for a little bit because I think it's so deep. First, John Paul II, who gave us these ideas during the Nazi occupation of Krakow, had to work at a chemical factory um, doing real hard labor together with other laborers. While he was doing it, though, he was taking his deeply philosophical and theological mind. He was leaving a clandestine seminary and able to go in order to go work. And then he was going back to the clandestine seminary in order to process all that he was doing. And as he was looking at, you know, the actual concrete work they were doing, um, there were a lot of people who were just half there. They didn't want to do anything for the Nazi regime. They hated the work that they were basically assigned to as kind of like a labor camp. Um, they hated that. And so they were being alienated from their work. And he started to ask the deeper questions. How are we able to do this in a way that doesn't 
separate us from God, from others, or even from ourselves. And that's where this all came from, that he said that there's a transitive and an intransitive dimension of work or objective and subjective dimension of our work, that at the same time that we make something, we form ourselves. And that was a very ancient idea of this fourth century doctor of the church, whose name was St. Gregory Nyssa, who said, by our work, we become our own parents, that we father ourselves, we create our character by either shoddy work, in which we're going to have a poor character, or virtuous work, where we're going to have a good character. But he put it into modern terminology um, that uh, that we've all experienced in a sense. Like if we, any artist, for example, who spends a lot of time on a work of art, at the very end when he or she steps back from it and looks at it, feels a sense of joy at the accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's really practiced the piano and worked hard at it, and then all of a sudden it comes out one day and there's no mistakes in it, feels a huge sense of accomplishment. We're not just making noise. We're forming ourselves. We're playing ourselves as an instrument at the same time as we're playing the piano. For a pitcher who goes on out and has practiced for years and all of a sudden learns how to throw that curveball right on the outside corner for a K, bingo. Like there's so much there in the personal triumph as we work through all of this. And so... In the Romance languages, I've had a chance to live in various other countries. When they have the word to do, um, there are always two different things that we need to learn which context it is. And they ultimately come from Latin. The Latin, we have words facere and agere. Facere means we do and make something. And agere means what we're doing within ourselves as we're committing those acts, as we're doing those acts, that there's always a feedback loop. Um, in which we're sculpting ourselves as we're doing something outside of ourselves. These words in Spanish, for example, are ser and actuar. In Portuguese, uh, fazer e actuar or agir. In Italian, fare and agire. For any of our listeners who know those languages, these are the distinctions that they always recognize that there's this twofold dimension. And by those words, they're stressing either the objective dimension of what you're making, this microphone, for example, that is before us, or what you're doing to yourself as you're using the microphone in which we're trying to teach, for example, and we're trying to share what we've learned with those who are listening, et cetera, that if we're doing that well, if we're doing it humbly, if we're doing it um, candidly, if we're not ah machining uh, people with an AK-15 of the mouth as we're doing, like there, there's, there's a different aspect of that. And so I've always found that super useful, especially when people are in jobs that they don't really love. They can begin to say, like, I got to get out of here. I'm not being fulfilled. I'm just not fully happy here. But in any honest work, and when I say honest, I mean you're not being a drug dealer. You're not being a human trafficker, etc. In honest work, even as a custodian in a gym or an orderly in a hospital, if you do that virtuously, there's enormous good that's happening for you even if you don't really think that the world is being changed much by your work, your own interior world is changing a lot. And so St. John Paul II wanted us to focus on that dimension. Ten years later in Chantissimus Annas, he started to look at the larger question of why communism fell. And he said that the reason why the Berlin Wall and all that it symbolized collapsed was because it was based on a false anthropology. Mm-hmm. 
Marx's ideas were all to try to liberate the proletariat, the working class. But instead, he alienated the working class by taking away this loving dimension of work, by trying to socialize everything, by taking away this subjective dimension, by just focusing on what you're doing for the common good. You lost the worker. You lost the human person, and eventually it would collapse from within because all of Marxism, all of communism was based on a flawed understanding of the human person. As a homo economicus, as somebody who was just just a worker, just doing something for the good of the state, rather than someone who was um, experiencing these intransitive, beautiful uh, aspects of growth— at a time in which somebody was likewise helping others. And so because of that, because of that lie, which was at the root of communism and all Marxism, John Paul II recognized that it was inevitable for it to fall. And when it did fall, he tried to help people recognize that it wasn't just because the U.S. government had um, satellites that could blow out Russian, missile, Russian missiles from the heavens, but it was really because of what was in the heart of man that wasn't being adequately geared for and developed behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah, I think that distinction, like you said, is just so helpful. And even that linguistic distinction, uh, I wish we had it more in English. And Me too. You, you can see it in words like factory, like this is where things are made. Yes. Um, but drawing that attention back to this is where people are formed as well. Um, that personalist focus is really important. And we've got to help people to learn as we're raising them what the purpose of their work is. Like, so I, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, was a high school chaplain for a while. And whenever you're working in schools, there are young people who lose motivation um, for whatever reason. To help them to find that motivation is one of the most important things that a teacher or a chaplain in a school can do. And what I do with the students is, like, do you want to get married one day? Well, yeah. Well, like, do you think it matters to your future wife and your kids what you're doing now? If you flunk out of Bishop Connolly High School, do you think you're really going to be able to support them? Well, probably not as well. I said, you're probably right. But, like, likewise, if you get to know your calculus right now or your algebra right now. Think about when your future children are coming and saying, hey, dad, can you help me with my homework? I mean, how much value are you going to get by being a good teacher at home and helping your kids get to know the subjects that you're struggling with with motivation right now so much better than you? You know, to see that light bulb go off, that new candle be lit inside, when you're teaching them that every work we do, including studying as a freshman in high school, matters over the trajectory of our life when you're um, when you're helping them to love people whom they haven't even met yet. Exactly. And not even what you're producing um, with that subject as an instrument or like, you know, this test maybe doesn't matter, but who you become through it, the character that you're forming is exactly what matters. That you are going to be a person who gives 100%. Mm-hmm who does the best job that you can on every given day, even if it's not going to be as well as you, it, it was well done as you might have done in another circumstance. That's what you can give today. That's the type of um, virtuous example that you want to inspire everybody you're ever going to care about in your form in that now. When I was a high school chaplain, we had a guy named Tom Brady as the quarterback of the New England Patriots. And, you know, every young kid, especially boy growing up in New England, uh, looked to Tom Brady as a hero. And I said, like, 
What do you think he was doing when he was a high schooler? Was he picking out on Doritos all day? Was he who needed to learn playbooks eventually one day sort of blowing off his studies? Was he not getting exercise? All of the things he was doing in San Mateo, California, when the spotlight wasn't on him, have made him who he is today. Likewise, what you're doing right here, this day, is going to matter for everything else you do later. And so to help people learn how to work in such a way that they connect it to God, they connect it out of love, even to people they haven't met, that's one of the most important things John Paul II was trying to do, and that's Catholic social teaching at its best. Yeah, that's great. It's great that it's being distilled, too, in high schools like yours, to bring it down to the level where students can really understand that. Can we turn to the entrepreneur and what John Paul II and other popes have said about the call of the entrepreneur, the noble vocation of the businessman? I know uh, back when these encyclicals were written, there was some more hostility towards entrepreneurship and business was maybe seen as distasteful. Can you talk about kind of how that's changed and how these encyclicals um, and other statements um, from the church have sort of helped to shape that? So the word vocation means that we've received a calling from God. And so Father Sirico um, invented the term the entrepreneurial vocation back at the founding days of the Acton Institute to show that made in the image and likeness of God the creator, we have a vocation to co-create with him, that he's implanted within us this capacity to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion, to bring into existence new human beings even who didn't exist, always in cooperation with him. And so um, the businessmen had been getting a terrible rap, especially in media, um, where everybody was a Gordon Gecko. If you were rich, it must have been because of a zero-sum game. Somehow you exploited or stole it from those who had less or had nothing, etc. That was the way um, Marxist ideas of this class struggle had infiltrated various educational institutions as well as Hollywood. But likewise, it was tough in many situations in the church. There was this movement in Latin America called liberation theology, which was trying to wed Marxist class struggle to Christianity, to basically say that the kingdom Jesus Christ had come to establish was fundamentally an earthly kingdom of um, equity, is what we'd call it today, where everybody else had the same stuff rather than the true gospel in which there's always going to be inequality, even in talents, so that those who have more have to share with those who have less. And I might have more than you in one area, Sarah, and you may have more than I do in another area, and I'm supposed to be sharing with you and you're supposed to be sharing with me, and that's the whole way we form a communion of persons in love. And so liberation theology was in the church, and it was trying to drag all church teaching into these Marxist categories, and for that reason, anybody who had success in business was suspect. Beyond that, there were bad interpretations of a lot of passages of sacred scripture, especially when Jesus says, like, woe to the rich, or it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, it's going to be challenging. Etc. So you had this whole big context in which business people who are successful and often sharing all of their proceeds with charitable things and employing so many people so that they'd be able to support their family were feeling um, demonized 
for just trying to strive to do good. Mm-hmm. Are there exploiters out there? Are there Gordon geckos? Yes, there are. They're the outliers. But they are the outliers. And so a- Acton was founded in order to be able to remedy that situation, as you know, as an employee of Acton, to be able to bring a, th- you know, a sound approach to business, to religious leaders, and to bring faith into the workplace, both of which were very much needed. And so, um, so the entrepreneurial vocation was... Uh, invented this term to be able to describe how God in calling all of us to holiness is calling business people to holiness, and then to sketch out how is it, first, that those who are involved in business are called to holiness, and then second, how is how is every one of us called to holiness supposed to be entrepreneurial and creative in the pursuit of holiness? So that's what's combined in this sense of an entrepreneurial vocation, a true calling from God to be entrepreneurial. And then for entrepreneurs in particular, to be able to recognize that the gifts and the talents that they have, even the new ideas, they come from above. And so to do it in concert with the Lord is the twofold way we approached it yesterday in the talk. Yeah, that's great. Could you sketch that out briefly for us here, those two aspects of the entrepreneurial vocation? The one for specifically we could start with for the entrepreneur, what are the virtues that they're called to? What are the ways in which they imitate their creator and how do they fulfill their vocation? And then we could talk about how all of us as Christians have to be entrepreneurial in some way. So a few of the traits that we see is, you know, Jesus was constantly saying to his disciples, put out into the deep. Take a risk. Do what doesn't make sense, even, that nobody else yet has the ability to do. When Jesus gave that command, he was telling Peter, Andrew, James, and John to fish in deep water in broad daylight when fishermen in the Sea of Galilee only caught in shallow water in darkness. It would be as if a fisherman had told a carpenter, I want you to hold the head of the uh, hammer and try to hit the nail with the handle, right? It was... Backwards, but the entrepreneurs are risk takers, which is something everybody's got to learn from them. Second, they have a participation in God's providence. Providence means you see ahead, literally, and they're looking ahead toward needs and desires that are not presently being met, sometimes at all, or other times not effectively enough at this time. So they're able to envision new goods and services, for example, or new ways of production, which are going to respond to people's needs better. That brings us to a third quality. They're constantly focused on what others need. They're other-centered in order to be able to say, what can I do to meet this need? Now, they're going to receive from what they do, but not always. We get back to the risk-taking part. They're they're capable of sacrificing, recognizing that sometimes their ideas may be a little ahead of their time. Sometimes they may have the greatest business idea, and then a pandemic hits, and all the businesses are shut down. It's just the wrong timing. You name it. But they've they've got this providential aspect of 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 life. They've got a great capacity for efficiency. They try to cut out waste uh, because that type of waste could tank a good enterprise. And so they help us to learn, all of us, how to be good stewards with the gifts that, we've, that we have to really develop what we have in order to serve others. Those are among the traits that we'll see. The Catholic Church has this beautiful document called The Vocation of the Business Leader, which goes through this. And in the talk that I gave here at the Acton University, I likewise talked about a great 
15th century Franciscan saint named St. Bernardine of Siena, who was at the time of the rise of Italian mercantilism at um, in the 14th and 15th centuries, was trying to help people to do it together with the Lord rather than just for money. And so he talked a lot about those virtues. And the church needs always to, to raise that high bar of virtue for business leaders so that it becomes far more than about profit, for example, but about the prophetic aspect of our work as we show its true dignity as agents and leaders, as well as respond to the dignity and the real needs of the people we're serving through whatever we produce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I think a couple of the elements that stuck out to me in this entrepreneurial vocation, um, firstly, was just a, a reverence for reality a reverence for how the world works, how it functions, that it's not a zero-sum game, that there's a way to bring benefit out of the work. Um, and just sort of an element of being savvy about where to take a risk, um, doing research, learning about the world and how it works, that, that implies a reverence of the way that it's been created and a, the way that, um, like you said, humanity's been put in charge of the world with um, to be stewards, but to have dominion over the world, um, to cultivate it. There's, there's a way that the entrepreneur um, has new ideas about how to do that in a way that corresponds to the way the world already functions. And they maybe see further than other people. They see new opportunities, uh, but it's all in accordance with the reality which they're already reverencing. I love that term, reverence for reality. And I think it leads to the second part of what you'd asked me before, which is like, how do we help everybody to recognize an entrepreneurial aspect of their baptism, really? Um, and, you know, the criticism often of the church is, is that we don't really see reality. We're talking in a theological ivory tower sometimes. Yeah, not, up in the clouds. Not, not on really the integrated real with day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And Jesus in becoming a tecton in Nazareth, getting his hands dirty and calloused and with splinters and the whole rest of it, shows us the type of integration we need. But this reverence for reality, sometimes, um, well, not just sometimes, quite often, those who work in the service industry have a far deeper understanding of where people are at than ministers do, than priests do, because they're constantly trying to get that feedback through surveys and everything else of what people really need today. And so this, this reverential respect for the persons in their reality and then trying to meet them in their needs is something that every Every believer needs to learn from an entrepreneur. Then we have to be creative in trying to solve the problems. We need to be original. We, Pope Francis is constantly saying we can't just fall back to say, well, it's never been done that way before. Mm -hmm. You know, Carlo Acutis, who's a new blessed for Catholics who died at 15, said like – all of us are born originals, but most of us want to die as photocopies. And he's like, no, 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 be creative. You know, and that, that aspect of entrepreneurialism, together with the efficiency, together with being good stewards of resources, together with looking ahead, all of those are things that everybody, no matter what his or her state of life is, is called to. Yeah. And so, well, it's really, it seems like an imitation of God himself, who's ever ancient, ever new. There's that holding on to reality and then that constant renewal Every day, his mercies are new every morning and the ways that we're called to imitate that, to be creative in our own fashion. Thanks for quoting the Book of Lamentations as well as St. Augustine in just a nice little quip, Sarah. Sure. Um, the, other, the other thing I think is 
really interesting about the entrepreneur vocation that I pulled from your talk was this emphasis on generosity and also the receptivity. I don't remember if you mentioned it today, but the the reception of God's love and receiving everything from him, um, even receiving opportunities from him. Entrepreneurs can see the world as it is and then see an opportunity that the Lord gives them um, to make a difference somewhere, to start something new. But it, it starts with receptivity and then it it becomes a giving of that generosity received from the Lord. And you mentioned the parable of the talents where the Lord is generous with all of his servants. He gives them an abundance, even in different amounts, and they in turn receive that, and then the good ones turn it into something else through their own generosity, through pouring out and and making a profit on it. Exactly. The the generosity um, flows from a gift received that we pay forward what we ourselves have received. And so there would be actually heretical ideas, contrary false teachings, if we had an understanding of an entrepreneur as someone who created first. That is not the way it happens. An entrepreneur first receives a gift, the gift of life, the gift of intelligence, the gift of this um, capacity to take risks, this ability to see ahead. All, all of these are graces, we'd call it, that has been received and they're responded to in an entrepreneurial way. And once we recognize the grandeur of the gift, we likewise recognize the grandeur of the opportunity to use the gift in ways that can truly help so many people. And so that's where the generosity flows from. And we see in that parable of the talents, which I used as an illustration, that um, God gave, well, the master in this parable representing God gave three different servants, five, two, and one talents. And I described that a talent, if somebody made $100 a day today, twelve fifty an hour for an eight-hour day, would be the equivalent of $600,000. And so $3 million, $2 million, and 600000 So even the one talent, it wasn't just like one thing. There was a yeah. huge amount to invest because there was a, a huge amount of trust there. And what, the first two who had received the five and the two talents brought back 100% return. The third buried it because he was afraid of failure, essentially. Uh, he, in the parable, he was called wicked and slothful. Um, he tried to blame the master for being demanding. No, 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 but the master was first trusting. And he himself produced and he himself was generous. And so in that parable, we see several very important lessons for us. But it's key for us to ask, what are the talents, what are the riches with which I have been bestowed by God. And sometimes when we look at what our talents are, we can say, well, I can sing well, or um, I'm good with my hands, or I've got a high EQ, and I relate well and make friendships easy, etc. Yeah, those sometimes we, when we look at talents, we ask, what makes me unique from others? But I, the most important talents we've received are what God has likewise generously given to others. Mm -hmm. This capacity to talk to God in prayer, this so many people he puts in our environment so that we can love them. For Catholics, we have the sacramental life. Those are the incredible things that we need to invest every day so that no matter what we do, we're paying forward the extreme and hyper-generous love of the Lord that we have received. The only reason why Jesus could command us to love one another is I have loved you. That incredible standard of cruciform love is because he's first poured into our hearts that 
amount of love if only we receive it as generously as he gives it rather than stifling or being stingy with it. Once we start to do that, then the whole Christian life starts to take off. And so some of the happiest people that you'll ever meet are those who are super generous. It's the unhappy people who no matter how much wealth they have, whether they're super poor or super rich, the ones who are unhappy are miserly. Generosity, we learn from the, the entrepreneurs of how to give everything over and how to constantly risk and what's the next thing that I'm working on. That way of living is, uh, is a model for the way all people should be loving. Yeah, that's great. So we've talked a lot about um, the importance of work, seeing work as a very human thing. Uh, I'm personally very encouraged um, to go about even just ordinary tasks well, Chris Marin at the Acton Institute, I'm sure, would be very happy to hear that. <laughs> sure. So there's definitely this benefit um, to seeing work in a much deeper way. Conversely, would you think there's a danger um, still to workaholism, to maybe seeing too much in human work um, and making it uh, sort of the center of your life? It's, it's still very importantly, in John Paul II, a part of human life and not the entire thing. So it's, it's a way that we can co-create with God. It's a way that we can receive his gifts and pour them out to others. It's a great model for us of how we're supposed to love. Um, is there a way of taking that too far and forgetting sure to rest? Sure there is. And that's why um, St. John Paul II and all of Catholic social teaching, going back to the book of Genesis, says that there's this interplay between work and rest between the six days of co-creating with God and then the day of Sabbath, resting with the Lord in which the Lord is able to reset us. The third commandment, keep holy the Sabbath day, is the only one of the Decalogue that tells us exactly why God gave it to us. But sometimes when we hear the reason why he gave it to us, it doesn't make sense. He said, remember to keep holy the day of the Lord, for you were one slaves in Egypt. What he's pointing out is that when we overwork, when work becomes an idol, when we become a workaholic, we've become a slave, a slave to the work we're doing, perhaps, or for many, a slave to what the work allows. So I'm working the second job and the third job, and I'm working on the Sabbath in order to have money in order to do A, B, or C. Sometimes those can be work of lo- works of love to afford the tuition of one of my kids to a school. Sometimes it can just simply be because you're in a rat race against the Joneses who are making profits next door, etc. But that Sabbath is essential for us to have a reset button placed in a relationship with God and others so we remember first who we really are. And we're not beasts. We're not mules. We have immortal souls. We need to care for that soul. But then when we do have that rest, we're able to look at the work we've accomplished and like God say, good, 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 very good. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for that capacity to produce in this way. We're able to appreciate the work that, 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 that we've done and give thanks to the Creator and then start to use the way that we've formed ourselves through work to love those around us, our families, our neighbors, our fellow parishioners in the churches to which we attend, etc., that we're all able to get that rightly ordered so that we're able to make sure that our work doesn't become an idol, but a means by which we become more like God, who Jesus said in John 5 
is working still. <laughs> yeah, I think rightly ordered is the, the good way to put it. Um, and that capacity for self-reflection really is only possible if we do take time to rest. It's hard to reflect on work as you're doing it, taking the time afterwards um, for self-reflection, which is a uniquely human capacity. I'm a chaplain to this wonderful initiative in um, New York City called the Leonine Forum, which we have 35 really super bright young adults from different professions who come on in. When I talk about Christian anthropology and how work fits in, you know, the first time I ever gave it uh, in New York, which is soon after I had arrived, uh, I got good constructive criticism back that told me that, Father, you can never speak about work here in New York City without addressing head-on the problem of workaholism. And other places where I had served as a priest, the pastoral issue that I faced was people who weren't working enough, people who were collecting for decades because they had a little injury at work, but that still, while they might not be able to do that job as a fireman anymore if they've got a little issue in their back or as a mailman, there's plenty of really important work that still needs to be done, but they were just collecting and, you know, spending all the time on the golf course. So it's and the extremes of motivation. It, exactly. One side or the and, other. You know, and so one of the reasons why Catholic social teaching has such a concern about unemployment is that if we don't have meaningful work in our life, a lot of the times we get totally lost, you know, especially for guys. Often guys are going to show that they love each other rather than say that they love their wife, for example. But if they don't have, a, if they don't have work to put into their sweat and toil, their love for their wife and their family, a lot of the times they're lost as a human being. Likewise with young people. Francis is always talking about unemployment about young people. If people don't learn how to work when they're young, those lessons of privation can impact the entirety of their life. And so work is so essential that, um, to our human flourishing that entrepreneurs who create jobs, create opportunities for people to work, are among the great heroes today. Just like heroes in the ball field, just like heroes in politics, there are still a few, like Sometimes they're able to accomplish objectively great things while inside being kind of messed up and vicious. But entrepreneurs who are virtuous people are among the great heroes in the modern world because they're permitting so many to live out their vocation from God through their work. And without job creation, uh, God forbid, where would be? Yeah, it's a noble vocation. Well, thank you, Father Landry, for joining us today on Act in Line. Super appreciate all of your insights today. It's been a great conversation. It's been an honor to be with you, Sarah. And thanks again for all your questions and especially from some of the hidden references you put into those questions. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.